The scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Hear now these words for us this day. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come. Let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So the greeting line at the end of worship usually goes something like this. Hi, I'm so glad that you came to worship today. Oh, oh, I am glad that you could hear and understand my English so well. I, I often say that I have my mother's teacher's voice. We're a loud bunch. Oh, where am I from? I, I was born in New Jersey. Where am I really from? I was born in New Jersey, northern New Jersey to be exact. <laughs> this little white house with red shutters. My parents still live in it. I mean, I grew up in East Hanover, but I spent all of my school years in Morristown. Where am I really from? <laughs> I see what you mean. My mother grew up in Chinatown in New York City, and my father came from mainland China when he was only 11 years old. But I was born here, Chinese-American. No, really, I'm sure I'm Chinese-American and not Korean-American. I mean, I could see how you could get that confused. I am Presbyterian, after all, and I suppose there are a lot of Korean and Korean-American Presbyterians. Do I speak any other language? No, well, I mean, I can speak high school level Spanish, but that's about it. And yeah, I guess that does explain why I don't have an accent, just straight up English. Well, thanks for coming to worship. We hope you'll come back next Sunday. It's a script that many Asian Americans are familiar with. That dance that gently explains the perpetual foreigner experience that we can never leave behind. Even if our birth certificates bear the name of a town in the United States, or we can mark the exact date that we became an American citizen, or we bear paperwork showing that we're legal, 
Our facial features will always betray us to another country, even if we've never set foot on that land. Overly familiar with the questions and assumptions that often come, I joke, well, Asia is a big country. <laughs> As if the 48 countries and thousands of languages spoken in the continent that we consider Asia unite us in any distinct way. A commentary that I read in preparation for the sermon this week, it reminded me of a Latin phrase that's written on American currency that we carry every day in our pockets and wallets, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. It's a subliminal message to what life in the United States is supposed to be, but no matter how much I tried from when I was growing up to my studies at this prestigious theological institution to my almost 12 years of ordained ministry, I've often found myself other just as much as I feel a part of the corporate body. To some of my Asian American colleagues, I would never be Asian enough to serve in an Asian American church, Chinese or otherwise. I can't speak the language to communicate with the older generations and would sometimes miss cultural cues that others could grasp so quickly. And to the predominantly white churches that I would end up serving, well, to them, I had to explain that I am not white. Surprise, surprise. That I do have experiences as a person of color that make me feel other even in their midst, no matter how culturally sensitive and politically progressive they may be. I live in the shadow of my immigrant father who praises the opportunities I've received, certain that it's because I don't have to face the same struggles with an accent that continue to plague him, or the challenge of being fully immersed in a new culture at the beginning of his adolescence. I'm certain, like so many other clergywomen, that I've made it to rounds of final interviews because I can fit multiple categories of representation as a clergywoman of color, and for some reason still a young adult in the church. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> like many female leaders, I can count on both of my hands the number of times the male pastor was hired, and I was told he was just a better fit for what we were used to. But truth be told, I know how to dress and the ways to speak or act so that I can pass. My e pluribus unum is rooted in surviving in a country that would rather see me as a perpetual foreigner than one of its own citizens. So I've been thinking a lot about this out of many, one, this e pluribus unum, and the college admission scandal that continues to unfold in front of us with stories that show the lengths that families will go to get their children into college. But we've got to acknowledge that the system was always rigged. Admissions because of legacies, generations of a family that attend a university and ensure that their next generation will as well or the ability to make donations to institutions literally putting their name on the map on campuses. Classes and courses to increase testing scores available only to those who can pay 
Students who have access to advanced placement courses, tutors, or costly extracurricular activities. Teenagers whose parents can afford to pay so that they can take the test more than once. And we can't forget the debates over affirmative action that challenge whether students enter based on merit or quotas. All of this makes higher education admissions for our young people more of a game than an equal opportunity. E pluribus unum? Tomorrow, April 25th, will mark the day that the water in Flint, Michigan was switched to the Flint River. Five years ago, the predominantly African-American community began consuming water that contained byproducts that could cause kidney, liver, and nervous system damage. By September of 2015, it had been determined that Flint's water was 19 times more corrosive than Detroit tap water. And children under the age of five had elevated levels of lead in their blood. In 2018, the state ended its water distribution program, claiming that the tap water was once again good enough for public consumption, despite the EPA's warnings. So here we are, 1,826 days later, with a community that distrusts its local government, believing that it placed finances over their own health. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. This is the myth and lore of Babel. You see, I don't think that the central message of the text is rooted in the human arrogance to build a tower to the heavens. In fact, if you look back, this is only a small mention in the whole passage. Rather, the people cannot fathom being blessed if they're scattered abroad. They believe that life will be easier if their community is like-minded, so they do everything they can to maintain the ability to speak the same language, to use the same words. And that tower, it would embody the power and presence of the people to rule themselves. That gigantic structure would become a tangible testimony to the work of their hands and the ingenuity of their minds, not the relationship to their creator that would center what they wanted their life to be. Sameness and unity become the order of the people. Like Babel, we're made to believe that the American dream is real. That if someone works hard enough, pulling themselves up from their bootstraps to put in enough blood, sweat, and tears, we can climb the ladder to success. We're spoon-fed the lie that everyone has equal access to resources. And if you're struggling, you're not working hard enough. We're taught that we're building this nation together when in reality we're crushed by one understanding of what it should mean to be a part of it. Should anyone think or act differently, challenging the status quo, they become the deviants and marginalized of society. And friends, truth be told, I think the church is lowered by Babel as well. We yearn for Babel when that committee or board member speaks just one more time in the meeting or asks one more question when we would rather move forward with passive acceptance of each request on the agenda. We yearn for Babel with the youth group member who is never where he's supposed to be or refuses to do what he's told. 
or that parent who emails the night before the big rehearsal to say that lacrosse practice is happening at the same time and their child isn't going to be able to come, but she already knows what to do anyway. The confirmation class attendee who hasn't been to church since she was baptized and probably won't come back once it's all done. And those visitors who come only on Christmas Eve and Easter, frustrated that they can't find a seat in the packed sanctuary or confused by the unfamiliar movements of worship that are the same from Sunday to Sunday in the life of the church. If they just came every Sunday, they would know. Why can't all these people just learn our language, fall in line, and acknowledge exactly how much work we've put into these plans in the first place? They just need to get it so we can focus on the things that really matter. The church yearns for Babel when we want our programs and numbers to testify to our success. It may not be a tower, although sometimes it is. But this day and age, we have to build something that proclaims the legitimacy and relevancy of our churches and the impact we have as a Christian community. Like the Babel community, deep down, we want to make a name for ourselves. We want something we can point to and say, see, we make a difference. We are important. We matter, and you should be a part of us. And if you're not, gosh, you're missing out. But the truth is that making a name for ourselves doesn't bring unity. It just encourages individuality. For each one of us, as well as for those in our pews, this hypnotic call feeds us the false narrative that at the end of the day, we can only trust in ourselves. That we're the only ones who can bring about personal success. And on a communal level, making a name for ourselves means that we're in competition with every other religious and nonprofit organization in the area. Our leadership has to work hard to distinguish the church from others, or we might die. In all of these situations, it's set up for us against the world rather than making a name for ourselves. I think we need to remember who bestows names in the first place. It was a regular Sunday morning worship when the young woman came into church red-faced and sobbing. She quickly took a bulletin from the usher and sat in a pew toward the back of the sanctuary. And she kept to herself and avoided eye contact with all the familiar faces around her. It was clear that she wanted to be left alone. She remained hunched over in her seat as fellow worshipers stood for the call to worship and the first hymn. Tears continued to fall down her face as she just looked at the floor. The worship service went on as usual around her as she sat quietly in the pew crying, but her sadness was audible at points. Picking herself up and gathering her things, she walked out of the sanctuary to the bus stop after the benediction. The following Sunday was much the same. Sarah's effervescent personality was replaced with sobbing in the back left corner of the sanctuary for four Sunday mornings. She sat quietly as the congregation around her worshipped without drawing attention to her saddened state. And I watched as some of her friends slowly gathered around her but asked very little about what was going on. 
It was clear that Sarah was present, she was with us, but she just wanted to be left alone. On the fifth Sunday, Sarah returned as if nothing had happened. She was mingling in the back of the sanctuary before worship and exuberantly hugging people during the passing of the peace. She stood proudly in her regular seat and sang all of the hymns with a kind of renewed passion. She lingered during fellowship hour and talked with worshipers until she was almost the last person left. I once asked Sarah about those four weeks. I wanted to know why she came week after week when she was feeling so sad. She didn't seem afraid to let others see her in such a vulnerable place, whether they knew her or not. And Sarah said, it was what I was used to doing every Sunday morning, and my body just carried me here. I knew that I could come to church when I didn't feel like it, at a time when I felt as though nothing in my life was going right. I trusted that everyone's faith could carry me when I didn't believe myself. To be known, and I mean really known here, to be known might be the greatest gift that the church can bestow to others today. In a world where we're encouraged to play the part, churches would do well to stop building. I believe that the church may be one of the last places where people can fully be who they are, or at least that's the way it's supposed to be. While the United States E Pluribus Unum is for the sake of nation building and a colonial agenda, the church reflects this call differently. Out of many, one is found in the diversity of the one body sent out from Babel, or in the spirit-filled community of Pentecost that spreads the good news, or in the celebratory oneness of the many members that Paul speaks of to the church in Corinth. So what if people brought not just their outward joys, but also their inner pains and struggles into the church community? What would it look like if we heard the deepest yearnings of those in our midst and came alongside them, carrying their faith until they were ready to embrace it once again? What if we took the time to listen to that complaining board member, that belligerent teenager, that overwhelmed parent, or even the stranger among us? How would our understanding of oneness be transformed then? Friends, I know that you're here to add tools to your toolkit, and I'm guessing that you're looking forward to networking with colleagues new and old, and I'm guessing that you hope that this institute will revive you for the next part of your journey to serve young people, gearing up to plant seeds when you return home. But don't forget that we serve a God who makes beauty out of confusion. The Holy One who takes our aspirations and transforms them into a mosaic made for the whole world. And certainly don't be captivated by the call of Babel and the supposed unity it whispers in your ear. Don't seek towers for your ministries. Don't turn your attention to building nations defined by rules and regulations that create insiders and outsiders. And stop trying to speak a language that denies the existence of different dialects among you. 
Catherine and Justo Gonzalez have said this about our passage for this morning. What the city and tower builders at Babel sought to accomplish for their own sake, in just a few short chapters later, God granted to Abraham for the sake of the world. See, God doesn't erase the Babel generation and start over with a new people. God sends that headstrong community out and equips them to start building anew. It's this kind of abundant love that continues to hold us close until we're ready to pick ourselves up, get out of our own way, and try again. God calls us to move over and over and over again. So let's get to the important work of transforming this world, a world that is in desperate need of a love that requires nothing, absolutely nothing, but a willingness to live as we were made to be all along. <laughs>